0: Strong
1: voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world
2: sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political
0: order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me.
3: What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change
2: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here.
4: We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
3: What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people.
1: A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice.
5: Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Karma Radio studios here on uh, RD, Country in Central Australia, broadcasting to uh, all nations through Vast Channel 911, Ronate Aitken here in Alice Springs. We're also coming to you online uh, from karma.com.au. Today is, of course, uh, Tuesday, it's the 18th of June 2000 and uh, 19. I'm your host for the program, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company all the way up until 12 o'clock today. Well, coming up on Strong Voices, we're going to be hearing about uh, a range of uh, education kits for schools that have been made available through uh, Common Grounds First Nations Bedtime Stories. Uh, you know, you Reconciliation Barometer survey back in 2018, it did show that uh, 80% of Australians consider it's important to know more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. So this is a new way for people to grow some of those knowledge around things such as, uh, you know, culture, history and things like that, as well as, of course, sharing those First Nation stories. We're as well going to be hearing about a uh, launch of a new uh, video from the Tungentura Family Violence uh, Prevention Program, which is aiming to break down some of those uh, stereotypes surrounding uh, those gender-specific roles within Aboriginal families uh, as part of the campaign. The new video has been launched recently on YouTube. And it's uh, depicting you know, an Aboriginal family and breaking down those different stereotypes and uh, mob making that difference. We're going to be hearing from... Uh, the co-coordinator of the Tanganyika Women's Family Safety Group this morning, uh, talking a bit about what that program, uh, what that new video is, you know, hopefully hoping to achieve, and and what the program as a whole is uh, has been going here in Central Australia. We're also going to be hearing about uh, Kabul uh, Wanamu, uh, which is uh, which has been established in Arnhem Land. It's a small village made of uh, modern materials but to uh, old Aboriginal designs. We're going to be hearing about uh, how the uh, only people have been doing it uh, for themselves there. We're going to be hearing that report from The Wire near the tail end of the program today. And we're, of course, going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well. Oh!
6: Hey, you Mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly.
5: You're listening to Strong Voices, you're here with me, Carl Dowling, this uh, Tuesday morning. Well, in 2018, a reconciliation barometer uh, survey showed uh, 80% of Australians consider it's important to know more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. In an effort to grow this knowledge, uh, education kits for schools have been made available through Common Ground's First Nations Bedtime Stories. Karma's Damien Williams recently spoke with uh, Rona Glenn mcdonald founder and CEO of Common Ground, uh, an Aboriginal-led organisation that aims to share First Nations stories, cultures, histories and lived experiences.
0: So we started this project at the beginning of this year where we wanted to record five creation stories from Central Australia that are aimed at younger generations and we worked with three different storytellers across Central Australia to record these stories and then share them across classrooms and with families all across Australia. So this week there's young people and families and organisations and classrooms learning from five stories that we've recorded in English and in language um, and they're taking part in this First Nations Bedtime Stories Challenge and learning from a story every week.
4: And, you know, having it in uh, language and in English, how important is that, you know, for for the next generation?
0: I think it's so important that language stays, you know, live and being spoken all the time. But we wanted to make sure it was accessible to all different audiences, you know, young people who might be from Chinese background or Arabic background. So we had the stories mostly in English so that everyone could understand, but then there's little bits of language throughout it. So there's a couple of literature stories, two Eastern Aranda stories and a Pitinjada story. And throughout them, there's a little bit of language. And we don't always have subtitles because we want people to think, you know, and, and, and try and figure out what that person was saying.
4: And as it is the early stages of, uh, you know, getting these stories out there, do you think um, you might, um, you know, even try and do some in full language?
0: Yeah, I think it's so important that we do it both ways. Um, This year we didn't have enough budget to do it both ways, but next year when we do more stories, we want to do, you know, the version with English and a bit of language and then a version full in, in language for, you know, mob to be able to... Watch and and engage with as well.
4: And Ronnie, you said uh, that you've um, got some stories from Luricha. Where else have you um, sourced their stories from?
0: We have Kathleen Wallace, who tells two Eastern Ardender stories. She tells the Seven Sisters story and the Mother's Tree story. And then we have a Pitinjada story told by Jonkaya Topeya and Lorna Wilson. And that story is called The Man in a Log. Um, and then Gerard Anderson's telling the two literature stories. Um, we shot those out at Ulumbaro near Nipipanya. And he's telling the one-eyed rainbow serpent story. And he's also telling the Bungalungu story.
4: And so you're saying, you know, you're shooting them as well. Are, are you getting, um, well, how how are you going about getting, you know, the stories uh, online?
0: Yeah, so we went out bush a couple of months ago now and shot took a film crew out sat down on country with these storytellers and um it was a bit of a process of asking them what stories they wanted to tell you know those non-secret or sacred public stories that they're allowed to tell and they want to share with the next generation and we shot over a week the five stories which was pretty crazy It was a pretty fast timeline and then we've been in the editing suite the last um you know couple of months putting it all together and they actually went the first one went live on monday um and that was the one-eyed rainbow serpent story and Yesterday we had the Bungalungu... Oh no! Today the Bungalungu story went out, and they're all being put online um, at the www.firstnationsbedtimestories.com.
4: Cool. And, and like you were saying, you know, there's some some challenges of trying to get uh, stories that are be are able to be told. How how was that kind of process? And like, what did you have to do to overcome that?
0: Yeah, we when we sat down with our three storytellers, we asked them what stories they wanted to share and that they'd be allowed to share and then we landed on the stories that were told but then also there's the process of getting all the right permissions and sign-offs from the people that have authority to share these stories and, you know, we wanted to work with some people that were younger as well so it was a challenge to get them involved particularly because, you know, you've got to have the right authority to tell the stories but in the end it all worked out and everyone's happy and the people that have seen the stories love them. Um We had the producer, my mum Penelope McDonald, show them at Saturday in school last week and all the, the young people were so, so excited to see them and they had a little Q and A afterwards to unpack what the stories meant and why they're important.
4: Like you were saying, um hopefully, you know, into the future, um what kind of uh or well, where else are you trying to have a look and get stories from?
0: Yeah, so as part of this year's challenge, all the resources are free, but we've asked people who can, when they sign up, to help us fundraise so next year we can go to a new region. I think next year we'll go somewhere else, maybe a different state or territory, um, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to come back to Central Australia and work with more people to record their stories.
4: And um, if people do want to get involved, where can they go?
0: If you go to www.firstnationsbedtimestories.com on that website, you can sign up and look at the stories, or we're on social media at Common Ground Australia on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, I'd just like to thank um, our storytellers and the amazing crew and people we worked with across the Territory. Um, it was really special for me to go back. I'm Kate Itch, and I got to learn so much about... You know, literature stories and Eastern Ardenda stories and Pitt and Delta stories. So it was a real privilege to be allowed to, you know, direct and capture these stories with mob. It was, yeah, just want to say thank you um, and thank you to all the people that have helped us on that journey.
4: Along those notes, are you, are you looking at um, trying to go back uh, to your mob and, and try and get some stories?
0: Yeah, there was a couple of k stories that we wanted to record, but then it didn't work out um, with the right storytellers. But I'd love to do some of that in the future, um, my family are all filmmakers, and we've told a lot of other people's stories, but I think it's important that we tell our own stories as well.
4: Yeah, Like you said, being able to tell your story is pretty important as well.
0: Yeah, very important. Um, my uh, auntie, Erica Glynn, released a film a couple of days ago on my nana's story, Frida Glynn. She was the co-founder of Karma. And it just won at the Sydney Film Festival for Best Australian Documentary, which was pretty, pretty special. Um, so that's, yeah, our first family's first kind of move into telling our own stories as well.
4: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why I'm here working at Camera at the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
4: <laughs> on that note, uh, Rana Glenn mcdonald uh, thanks very much for joining us here on Cam Radio.
0: Thanks for having me, Damien.
4: That
5: was Rona Glenn-McDonald there, founder and CEO of Common Ground, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country here on Strong Voices very soon. Before then, we are going to go to a quick break, so stick around and we'll be right back.
1: Hi guys,
4: this is Dan Sutton and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio.
5: That's right. You are listening to Strong Voices this Tuesday morning. Great to have your company. You're here with me, Carl Darling, And now I'm joined in studio with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Welcome to the program.
4: Yes, good morning Carl and good morning to our listeners Good morning
5: Well it is of course time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from uh, right across the country We'll start with you Paul I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, Victorian Treaty
1: Well uh, of course Victoria um, well ahead in its um, um, treaty process uh, one of the first states to really uh, take on the issue of treaties uh, seriously but the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner Jill Gallagher uh, is uh, hoping that younger Aboriginal people uh, will also have an important role to play in the uh, treaty advancement process. Uh, Victoria is uh, gearing up for the nation's first treaty, and the process will allow Aboriginal uh, people to enrol and nominate leaders to assist with the treaty advancement Um the uh, city of Whittlesea, uh, down in uh, Victoria, which has the second largest Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, uh, population in metropolitan Melbourne, um, has attracted uh, Miss Gallagher uh, for that very reason. So she's uh, been down there talking to uh, various uh, schools and the the uh, large. Uh, Aboriginal student bodies down there uh, who attend those schools to uh, see if she can 't uh, get them actively involved in the treaty process uh, we haven't actually had a look at the the process for quite a while. Um, there has been some uh, discontent within the grassroots uh, communities around the process itself uh, but um, I think it's time that we perhaps give Jill Gallagher and uh, some of the uh, people who are not so happy with the process uh, to get an update on on how it's going.
5: Yeah, yeah, definitely very interesting in terms of how it's progressing. As we know, each each mob is unique in terms of what they face within their communities and, and things that they want to get out of a thing like a treaty. As, as we know, it, it can mean multiple things to to many mm-hmm. different people. So it'd be very interesting uh, going forward what people have to say and as well i think you know uh, i think getting as much messages as we can out there for people so they have understandings about what what this could potentially mean and things like that as well as for non-indigenous mob as well getting that understanding out there i think
4: and like you said you know there's you know many aboriginal nations out there and Mm. um you know the process will have to be is it going to be a one treaty for all aboriginal peoples or? yeah
1: this is where i th- i think there are massive problems and mm-hmm. um, it's even brought up uh historical uh content now about mob who were moved off country their yeah. connection to country i mean obviously victoria's uh, uh it's still a sizable area but many of the mob um, uh, you know were shunted off country by white settlers uh, removed and then other mob settled back on that country and have claimed ownership of that country off a previous mob so yeah uh, there's a a lot of work to be done and i mean we have seen that a lot as well you know with
4: another example was you know in america where um uh, other like having treaties like you said people getting moved off and people feeling lost and not connected to a a country, and they're like, Well, how are we supposed to have a treaty if we haven't even got our land? And so, yeah. it's and like you said, there's a lot of different areas w- in which a treaty um, may people may have different ideals or you know, different things that they want to put into the treaty as well. Yeah. Uh, so, it's yeah, it's a really big thing.
5: And, and, and I'm obviously anyone who's going to be a part of the process is going to be wanting to ensure that. What comes out of it is significant, and as is actual benefit to the Aboriginal community and the mob on the ground. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing moving forward—that it actually has you know substantive impact, as, as opposed to just being something that is more symbolic.
1: Hmm. And and benefits for the for, for the for the youth and, and hmm. into the future. I mean, um, you know, one would imagine that a treaty would be a a, a long-standing um, agreement, um, and it's important that. You know, all of the the relative players um, be involved and they're all a the part of th- that process. And, and safeguards to
4: ensure yep. that um, treaties aren't, um, what do you call it, uh, gone back on as well, yeah. as mm-hmm. we've seen <laughs>
1: in America. Yeah, yeah.
5: Definitely, though. Obviously, it is Australia is getting there very late, but I think very important that we're having these conversations. Well,
1: Australia is the only Commonwealth country that doesn't have a treaty with its mm. First Nations. Mm. Yeah, so long. Long way before to the <laughs> table. <team. laughs> yeah,
5: better late than never, though I guess. Uh, on to our next story, we we'll go to you, Damien. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to the uh, Royal Commission in regards, in particular, on and uh, aged care.
4: Yeah, the Royal Commission returns to focus on aged care in remote areas and Indigenous Australians. Um, people who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander make up 16% of the remote population and 40% of the very remote populations and the first day of the hearings um demonstrated the importance of connection to to country um to these communities in the aged care settings as well um the the uh Royal Commission Qualified and Safety has resumed in Broome in Western Australia. Uh, and uh, a lot of people say, um, Faye Deans, for example, says that there needs to be a greater understanding of the differences between Indigenous and mainstream cultures to ensure appropriate care is provided um, through uh, Miss Faye's uh, experiences supporting aged Age Indigenous Australians, um, she says, there needs to be more of an understanding to the community about dementia as well. Permanent positions for aged care workforce and more respite opportunities as well for people who are carers um, that need, um, you know, a break as well from. Um, and a bit of help with looking after people that um, suffer from, uh, you know, dementia and, and other things like that.
1: Yeah. Ken Wyatt, when we spoke to Ken last week, did flag that aged care uh, and a lot of the, um, the health areas would be, uh, you know, future areas of massive growth in job employment for Aboriginal people. So actually, whereas culturally and traditionally families may have looked after their old people well now uh, that has to be recognized as a job and people have to be paid to, to do that and uh, so I, th- I think if there are uh, areas that um, are um, you know potential winners for the mob um, certainly aged care uh, would be one of one of those areas and uh, we know that delivering services remotely is much more um, you know obviously much more taxing on people when they don't get that relief when they're caring Mm. Um, so yeah uh, a a big area and this royal commission hopefully will um, identify uh, you know the role that the first nations have uh, historically have played
4: yeah and and i think there's as well people are just wanting to um get more education around um you know things that like dementia that affect the older generation but can affect um, young people as well but education around you know how to um help deal with dementia how to take you know care for people with dementia it is a very uh you know scary thing having you know family members in my family that suffer from dementia as well um it can be very scary for family, um, especially when, um, like for example, my grandma's brother who just took off, just went driving, up. and you know mm-hmm. was like drove back home, saying, "Oh, where's my wife gone?" And like you know, because mm-hmm. they went in for shopping, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I don't know where." Like my auntie asked him, "Where's your where's your mm-hmm. wife?" And he's like, "Oh, I thought she'd come back here with you, mob." Yeah. But she, he left her in, in the shop and in, in home. But um, yeah. luckily, that wasn't a, you know life threatening um, no. situation. But those mm. things can be very scary.
1: A, a, a couple of years ago, now we did an, an interview with um, one of the um, uh, dementia workers from Centre for Remote Health. We might pull that interview out again and yeah. just uh, now that this is going on, uh, just, uh, you know, remind people of the type of issues that uh, that, that are out there in, in the remote communities. Mm. Well, on that
5: note, uh, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank, thank you. you. We're going to head to uh, a couple of tracks now and then we'll be right back with our next story here on Strong Voices.
0: G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio.
5: That's right. You're listening to Calm Radio here on uh, this Tuesday morning. It's uh, eleven. Uh, it's eleven forty four at the moment. You have my company Carl Darling here. I'll be taking you up until twelve o'clock today. We're going to head into our next story for the show. Well, the Mums at uh, Mums Can, Dads Can campaign developed by the uh, Tanganyura Family Violence Prevention Program aims to break down the stereotypes of the gender specific roles within Aboriginal families. As part of the uh, campaign, a new animated video has been uploaded to YouTube which shows how gender stereotypes can factor into family and domestic violence. Yesterday I headed down to uh, the Tanganjara Women's Family Safety Group in Mbantu Alice Springs with the uh, amazing group of women uh, They're fighting against domestic violence gathered for the launch of the project.
3: Good morning everyone, I'm Shirley, I'm the co-coordinator for the Tanganjara Women's Family Safety Group and one of the core governance and I'm a proud town camp and always living in Thanks for coming along and... What we're going to be talking about is basically what we do in the program. So this is us, the Tunganjira Family Violence Prevention Program. And this is who we are, the Tunganjira Family Violence Prevention Program. This is one of the quotes we like to use all the time coming from one of our women's and I feel like it's a powerful bold and strong message Mm -hmm. is that we open up the windows and the doors and let the violence out. Mums can, dads can is all about flipping that gender stereotype role within our home. You know having mums can, dads can project is actually kicking off pretty good because a lot of our mob don't actually understand it so having program like this is actually kicking off pretty good, Slipping um, that gender stereotype in our own homes. It also alleviates the challenges that sort of basically changing that society of you know, telling our men you know, they can't seek help and they've been called a wuss and you know They've been told they've been sissies and they can't stand up and fight. So we're going to have a whole lot of generation of young men who's going to be actually using their fists. But actually having a program and a project like Mums Can, Dads Can, like I said again, flipping that gender stereotype role, is also um, having our young ones to understand that you can't use violence. I mean, it's okay to seek help, especially in our men's and our young ones, um, in our male peers. It's okay to get help. It's okay to cry. I mean, you know, it's okay to go get all that support that they really needed. So we need to change the society and that what we're, we're living in today. So, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty proud having the Mums Can, Dads Can project and launching it today. I'm pretty privileged to announce it, that it's we've showed it, and can't wait to air it on TV as well, because we need to spread this message out to the community, and let alone not just our community, but... Australia, I reckon, in general, because, you know, family and domestic violence is not racism, it's everybody's business. Everybody needs to get on the same platform and need to walk together and support each other.
5: We did watch a pretty exciting video today. It was good to see, you know, that style of video that I think will be really relatable for the mob. Yeah. What, what are your hopes that come out
3: of that video? For a lot of our mob, you know, we we know when we're doing the paintings or, you know, telling a story, it tells, shows a whole range of picture of, and an understanding of what our mob are like. So having something like this as a cultural knowledge and perspective, a short film is sort of... I reckon people can actually see and tell just by just by looking at the pictures and the colour and, you know, having Aboriginal actors as well. So we need more and developing more resources like our short films and more posters and I guess toolkits as well for not just um, mums and dads and our young ones but I guess for schools and other organizations and whoever else wants to yeah share that
5: in terms of that breaking down those stereotypes why is it important to, to break down those stereotypes you now you know like you're saying earlier like men have to be seen as a specific way or you know mothers have to be seen
3: Well, I guess since the intervention started, really, I mean, you know, it exploited a lot of our males, um, our young ones and our older ones, because it stopped um, the cultural knowledge of teaching from our um, elders, past, present and future, because they're also the one who actually um, collect and look after all those stories, and they're good at collecting their own data, so, you know, having things like that sort of helps our more bond understanding and, yeah, like flipping that gender stereotype and... I guess takes baby steps and ripple effects that people are actually going to hear and see that we're, the work that we're doing, and they're slowly going to catch on and do that in within their own communities i mean I'd like to go out and you know give them that little bit of a start up push mm.
4: and
5: how do you think just finally yeah how, how do you think that knowledge and understanding is getting out there, you know on the ground like here in Alice Springs in terms of you know being able to Talk about things like this, you know, be able to communicate amongst men and women Mm -hmm. about domestic violence.
3: Well, I guess for me, um, for the non-Indigenous people, is that I actually need to take a step back and they need to listen I mean when I talk about listening they need to have that understanding of deep listening deep listening is not just listening it's you know watching and hearing and seeing what you know the good work that people are doing following and walking behind them. Or slowly you're going to get that educational tool and then you're going to actually you know support this mob and walk alongside it's that two-way learning as well so two-way learning is pretty powerful and I see having that two-way learning can go a long way
5: That was uh, Shirlene Campbell there, co-coordinator of the uh, Tungendura Women's Family Safety Group, ending that report. We're going to be heading into our next story uh, very soon. Before then, though, we are going to go to a quick break, and then uh, we'll be right back.
4: Strong voices on
5: 18FM. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here this uh, Tuesday morning. We're going to head into our final story of the show now. Uh, Kabul Ramanyu uh, has been established by uh, Wodokan Rangers in Arnhem Land. It's a small village uh, made of modern materials but two old Aboriginal designs. The uh, Wodokan Rangers can stand country even during uh, the big. Uh, wet seasons that they experience in the top end and are actually using uh, innovative uh, carbon credits to finance their unique buildings. The YSRAC Chambers files this report.
6: Well, and Rangers in Arnhem Land have used an innovative model of funding a community of suitable building structures that allow them to wait out each year's big, wet and managed country. They've leveraged carbon credits to finance their buildings and provide a sustainable model for communities all throughout the Top End. As Monash University's Dr Hannah Robertson explains. In
2: 1996, ATSIC declared a moratorium on the creation of new homelands and so what happened was um, Watercan knew they wanted to get back on country. Um, they knew that they had this land that they could manage and so they started a ranger group, Waterkin Land Management, and then gradually began to start building these balabala structures which are variations of a traditional shade shelter. And as they were building these, they built them with what materials and resources they had access to. And gradually, as their land management um, practices continued to evolve and they continued to get more carbon credits, so too did the Bulla structures. And so they've undergone a number of iterations and, and design changes as, um, you know, they've been in-country and seen the improvements that have occurred to them. So initially, there was um, their cedar posts, um, which are local timber um, that's milled from um, surrounding sites, and... Um, and, and is that sort of like that,
6: insect resistant type stuff?
2: That's termite resistant. Yeah. Yep. Okay.
6: Um,
2: and so uh, they did that and then they had timber rails for a long time, but they found that, you know, because of the bending capacity of timber, um, it doesn't perform as well um, over a long period, period of time in that. Um, kind of formation. And so, um, and I think the rails, uh, I'm not sure if they always use cedar or whether they use stringy bark, because you could, um, but they found that they needed to replace them more frequently. And so they then evolved to using um, stainless, uh, not stainless steel, um, uh, steel um, rails, horizontal rails. And so that was the next kind of change. And then the subfloor structure, um, they also found that you know, um, to use some seal in the subfloor framing meant that you could mitigate some of the issues about termite ingress and um, the long, uh, long-standing use of those um, uh, platforms. And so that was the next sort of change that happened as well. These changes are still, you know, largely to do with the skills that are involved in constructing these. They can all be built by local people up there, um, and it maintains that. Continuity. The Kabawanamu community now know how to build these structures and they've evolved now further. And the latest addition, which actually isn't in that article, is that I think at Auntie Mary's place there, who's um, one of the senior traditional owners, they've built a stone half walling. Around the um, the Balabala structure and that stone, it's all rock country up there. Um, is all also locally sourced, and so. So what's
6: will... uh, so uh, structurally then? What is the stone doing? Is it is it like part of the wall or?
2: Structurally, it's not performing a load bearing function. It would be half walling so it sort of goes up to hip height. And it's basically to um, forming more of a, a functional purpose, which is that um, it would be mitigating you know rain and um, water from getting into the building. I was
6: just reading too where you're saying that the uh, each balabala, is that the way we we say yes. yeah yep. each each balabala, uh they could do one of those for about fifteen thousand dollars. Yes, that's, that's incredibly cheap for a building, isn't it
2: Yes. Yes, by yeah. anyone's um,
6: estimation, yes. But uh, they've also obviously picked up uh, quite a lot of skills, uh, building skills. Yes. With joinery and they're using steel, uh, wood, uh, canvas. Uh, they've done pretty well, and then they're getting. They're also got financial skills from all this too, by yes. uh, accessing uh, the the carbon credit uh, money that's coming through. Yes. So. Yes. Um, so this is an incredibly good success story, isn't it, really?
2: <laughs> yes, I think they're brilliant.
6: Yeah, and uh, I was just wondering too, with um, the people of Cape York, now they would have different climactic conditions and are you, do, do you see that there's, there's different design elements in their uh, thinking for buildings?
2: Yes, I think it's always very contextually Um, dependent what the uh, appropriate form of construction is Um, and it depends on the place itself I've also worked in North East Arnhem Land and you know in different places you could look at other resources like timber in certain places more so, earth construction, sandbag construction but and it's not because of, like, some kind of hippie mentality of wanting to build with natural materials, but more that they're available and that the cost of getting anyone out... And I was talking to someone recently from Lainapoi Homelands Association, which is in northeast East Arnhem Land, and the cost of actually getting someone out to fix a door lock is over a $1,000 just to put someone in a car with a new door lock set. And communities know what they need, you know, and you listen to that and co-design it together, then you can actually mitigate the need to, you know, um, have these kind of disastrous systems that where they're very dependent.
5: Yes, that was uh, The Wise Roddick Chambers speaking with uh, Dr. Hannah Roberts from Monash University. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for today. Thank you for tuning
4: in.